was I surprised when this began? Uh, I was surprised by one thing. I was surprised that anybody else could possibly be surprised. Hello and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms, coming to you today um, from my bedroom, uh, as I'm sure a lot of us are working from home, and we're really happy to still be able to deliver the Vintage Podcast to you. Today, um, we are traveling the whole way over to the US um, to speak to David Quarman, who is the author of Spillover, whose subtitle just happens to be animal infections and the next human pandemic. Now at Vintage, we know that we have a lot of amazing experts uh, in our midst. And I knew if I searched through our archives hard enough, I'd find the perfect person uh, to introduce you to today. David joined us from Montana to explain in laywomen's terms, for me at least, the origin of COVID-19 and viruses like it, whether this really is just bad luck or if a lot of people in power had already seen this coming, and through a fascination for viruses, how David found himself in a swamp with a copy of Trollope in his backpack. We had the most incredible discussion. David taught me more in 30 minutes than potentially a few of my secondary school teachers. And I really can't think of a better advert for the incredible value the authors bring to the table at a time like this. So without further ado, here's David. This is our first um, ever uh, vintage podcast remote interview. So really? thank you for being, yeah. You're, you're the first. You've definitely... Great. Okay, here so, we are, making history. Are. I know, making history. Um, how are you adjusting to isolation, David? How's it been for you? It has been much easier for me and my wife than it has been for most people. We have two dogs, uh, a cat, and a python, and it, that's the family circle. And wow. that's that's the... There's no social distance among us, but there is between <laughs> us and everybody else. And uh, I'm used to working at home. Working at home except when I'm traveling in Africa or China or somewhere, working at home for me is business as usual. We were talking on the podcast last time um, about how maybe it's actually authors we should turn to to learn about isolation and quiet and, and, and mm -hmm. kind of living off your own mental resources. So I think that's really interesting. So for many, the kind of like current um, COVID situation seems to have come out of nowhere. But for you, I can imagine it's, it's the opposite. Um, how, how long do you think you've kind of seen this coming? I'm assuming you've seen this coming in some form. How I long have, have you been thinking about this as a possibility? Well, at least for 10 years. I mean, wow. when, okay. as you said, Spillover um, was published in 2012 in the US, I think same year in Britain. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I mean, there it is in the subtitle, Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic. Uh, this is what I was talking about in that book. Yeah. And the book contained uh, a pretty accurate prediction of what's going on now, not because I was prescient, but because I was talking to a select group of very savvy scientists who worked on this kind of thing, zoonotic diseases, meaning diseases that pass from non-human animals into humans. So that's the subject of spillover, uh, zoonotic diseases, um, including coronaviruses, uh, diseases caused by coronaviruses, such as SARS. And uh, toward the end of my research, I started asking these experts, well, is there gonna be a next big one, a next big human pandemic? And if so, what does it look like? And the answers I got, if you created a composite of them, 
uh, were, well, yes, there will be a next big one. It'll be caused by a virus. That, that virus will come from an animal. What kind of an animal? A wild animal. What kind of a wild animal? We're very possibly a bat. What kind of a virus? Well, a virus that has fairly high um, evolvability, changeability, ability to, to adapt, to mutate and adapt. Well, what might that be? Well, possibly an influenza or a coronavirus. And where might this happen? Oh, well, someplace where humans come in close contact with wild animals, such as a wet market, where, oh, for instance, in China. So that Just is all a there. Example. That yeah. was all there in the book eight years ago. So was I surprised when this began? Uh, I was surprised by one thing. I was surprised that anybody else could possibly be surprised. I was wow. surprised that governments were so unprepared for this, including especially my own government, the US government. I was really surprised at the failure of our response uh, because the scientists knew, the public health officials knew, even the national leaders I believe knew, but they just weren't willing to spend the money and spend the political capital to get prepared for something that might not happen during their term of office. Right. So we're also talking about short term and long term possibility and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and that coming into yeah. it. Um, can you tell us, just going back a little bit, what exactly, because I think before this pandemic, nobody really heard, had heard the word zoonotic. Am I saying it right? Zoonotic? Yeah, zoonotic yeah. or zoonotic, both are correct. Zoonotic. Maybe it's my British accent. Um, what exactly it is, just breaking it down a little bit more, what it is, and, and why you became so interested in it in the first yes. place, where it's taken yes. Okay, sort of the ABCs of this. First of all, yeah, please. Uh, yes, a zoonotic disease, as we've said, is an, is an animal infection that passes into humans and becomes a disease. It okay. might not be a disease in the wild animal. It might just be a virus living there peacefully in the wild animal. But if it spills over, and that's the moment when it passes from a non-human animal into a human, if it spills over into a human, it takes hold, replicates in that human, and then causes disease, that's a zoonotic disease. And if it passes from one human to another, um, transmitting well, then that becomes an outbreak. You've got a cluster of cases. And if the outbreak grows and, and affects a, a large number of people in a given country, that's an epidemic. And if it spreads from that country, all over the world, infecting a lot of people in a lot of different countries, that's a pandemic. That's what we have. How did I get interested in it? About 25 years ago, I got interested in Ebola virus, the one of the spookiest, uh, scariest of these viruses that live in animals and pass occasionally into humans. Um, it's not the most uh, dangerous in terms of global spread, but it was um, it was fascinating to me. And then I was asked to do an assignment for National Geographic magazine that involved um, uh, writing a series of stories about a fellow who was walking across the forests of Central Africa for months, months, months. Uh, he was walking 2,000 miles bushwhacking through the forest. And I went with him for long stretches of time, a week here and 10 days there. And uh, at one point, we walked for 10 days through a stretch of really wild forest in northeastern Gabon. And we knew that it was Ebola territory. We knew that the Ebola virus was living in that forest somewhere because there had been an outbreak in a village at the edge of this forest along a river. 
So we knew Ebola was there. Uh, another part of the ABC is the animal in which a virus lives before it spills over into humans is called the reservoir host. The reservoir because it lives there over long periods of time inconspicuously. So the reservoir host of Ebola was unknown. It remained a great mystery for a long time. So we knew it was there somewhere in that forest. This horrible, scary virus living in some kind of an animal. And we're walking through there in sandals and shorts and cutting our way through the forest and, and walking you know, across blackwater streams and swamps and sleeping on the dirt every night and eating out of a common stew pot over a campfire and wondering where was this virus. We weren't eating wild animals. We didn't do that as a policy, but we especially wouldn't have been doing it there because we didn't want to pick up a dead animal and then have it turn out to be dead of Ebola. So that's when I got interested in the ecology and evolutionary biology of Ebola virus. And then by extension, zoonotic viruses of all sorts. I wrote a piece about this for National Geographic, and then I started work on a book about it. That's amazing. And that's what's resulted in spillover. That's, and that well, became spillover, yeah. yeah. That became spillover. Um, obviously, the kind of occurrence of zoonotic diseases is, isn't an, a new thing, but can you outline just like in layman's terms why they've kind of become a bit more frequent or have they become more frequent or is it that we, we're just recording it more and understanding it more? Well, that's a good way to put the question. Um, uh, it, uh, it seems to have become more frequent. These spillovers that become zoonotic diseases and then turn into not just outbreaks, but in some cases, epidemics. Now, it's not a new thing. Um, we humans have always lived close to wild animals, more so in, on average in the past. Uh, and there have always been plagues. The bubonic plagues of the 14th century were zoonoses. Um, it, right. They were caused by a plague bacillus, a bacterium, not a virus, that passed from rats um, into humans by way of fleas that jumped off rats and jumped onto fleas, jumped onto humans. Um, so, and the, the plague of Athens in Thucydides uh, was presumably a zoonotic uh, disease, a zoonotic oh, plague. Okay. So, so these have been around for a long time, but um, in the last oh, I'll say 60 years, there has been a drumbeat of new viruses, new to humans, dangerous, killer viruses, in some cases causing a few um, deaths, and in some cases causing many. Um, they have been coming, and I could recite the whole list, beginning with Machupo virus, causing Bolivian hemorrhagic fever in 1961, and they go on and on. Ebola, Marburg, uh, SARS, Nipah virus, Hendra virus, boom, 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 seem to be happening more for at least two reasons. One, as you said, we're, we're paying closer attention. We have better science. We're detecting these things. We're, we're more connected in terms of information, so we notice these things better. But they almost certainly are happening in absolute terms more frequently. Why? Well, because there are 7.7 .7 billion humans on the planet now. We're very smart, we're very hungry, we're making demands on the natural world for resources, for food, for energy, for timber, for minerals, for all these things. And so we are going into the wild diverse ecosystems of the planet, either we personally or proxies for us um, are going into these places and causing disruptions, coming in close contact with wild animals. And when that happens, we are presenting the viruses that those wild animals carry with an opportunity 
to expand their possibilities, expand their evolutionary success by jumping into a new host. And we, when they jump into us, as one scientist had told me, then they've grabbed the golden ticket um, because they can spread potentially all over the world. This virus, for instance, right now, I've been saying, I think it's one of the two most successful viruses in the world. The other one being HIV. Yeah. Successful in the very least. Yes, yeah, successful, the successful, world, yeah. in, successful in Darwinian terms and in, in yeah. measures of, of evolutionary that's success. It, that's its goal, and I suppose because we're so mobile. Is it we're, when you say we've struck the golden ticket? Is it because humans are so there's so many of us, and also we're so mobile and we're flying all the yes. time? Yes. Yes. The right. virus is the virus has grabbed the golden ticket because there's so many of us and we are so interconnected. So if a virus can spread from one human to another, pretty efficiently then that virus can travel from Hong Kong to Toronto in about 16 hours. That virus can yeah. get around the world in, in a day. Yeah, uh, which is not, which is unprecedented in history. Yes, yes. Right. So yeah, the bubonic plagues of the 14th century, they may have killed a third of Europe, but we have no evidence that they did anything in South America or in North America. Right. Yeah, because there was we, we no, weren't that yeah. connected. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what do you think are the kind of main misconceptions you're coming up against when people are kind of because you obviously your, your phone's probably ringing off the hook at the moment what are the it, things it, you're running into that you're like we, we're really lacking a basic understanding of, of i don't know maybe the causes or yeah well um one of the i think one of the misunderstandings is that oh this this pandemic was was caused by chinese people who insist on eating bats right Mm. And there's there's racism wrapped up in that. There's xenophobia yeah. wrapped up in that. Um, but there's an understandable um, reaction to the idea that this virus did come from a bat and it may have passed into humans at that infamous um, market. Um, I suppose I shouldn't even call it infamous, but the, the Huanan Wholesale Seafood Market in the city of Wuhan. There's actually evidence that um, that it didn't begin in that market, that it came from a bat and was circulating in the city of Wuhan during the month of November. And that then in December, some human may have carried it into that market and then got passed wow. around in the market. And so um, I think uh, there, were, there were 41 initial cases that have been identified and those 41 cases, 27 of them came from uh, from the market were in people who were directly or indirectly connected with that market. The other 14 cases, nobody knows. Right. So um, that's, I mean, is that important? Well, it's important in understanding how this happened because unless we understand how this happened, we can't prevent the next one. Uh, so that's one of the things. And then I, I say to people, you know, this is not just about bats and not just about the, the Wuhan market and certainly not just about Chinese people. We all have a responsibility in this general phenomenon. We all are making demands on the natural world that cause our proxies, people who work on our behalf, to go into wild diverse ecosystems and cause ecological, ecological disruption. Every time, every time we purchase certain minerals, every time we do something that involves um, uh, tropical hardwood, um, uh, and in lots of other ways. Essentially, all the decisions that we make, what we eat, what we wear, what we consume generally, how much energy we consume, how much we travel, how many children we have, if we choose to have children, all of those decisions uh, have impact on the 
the rest of the natural world. And by having impact on the rest of the natural world, we are shaking loose viruses from their natural hosts, their reservoir hosts, and giving them the opportunity to get into humans. So that's one of the points that I think it's important to make is that there is responsibility all around for this general phenomenon. Yeah, well, that, that I guess that leads into my next question is, if it, that is uh, uh, how do we recover and then also how do we prevent? But I guess it is, I was gonna go more with your first point was about um, how governments knew and they haven't reacted in the right way and, and potentially, yes. but potentially it's also a, a personal thing and um, can you think of like ways that we can prevent this happening from a personal perspective and also from a government perspective like what can we do well it's different we are going to be very challenged when this is finally over um, in terms of the things that we take for granted we may have to rethink um, you know i'm i'm rethinking whether i can conscionably continue to eat meat three times yeah. a week you know yeah. Uh, because um, I'm not eating wild animals, but I'm eating domestic animals that are raised, some of them in, at industrial scale. I try and eat as much as possible organic stuff that comes from small local producers, but mm -hmm. um, still not entirely. And, uh, and factory farms and factory scale husbandry of animals does have impact on the natural world. Uh, uh, for instance, when influenza pandemics spread around the world, um, factory scale production of chickens uh, is sometimes implicated in that. Um, these, these connections are all intricate and they really need to be looked at on a case-by-case -case basis. But um, the general um, lesson is that um, if this thing is as bad as it looks like it's going to be, or, or, or even worse than it might be, um, then we're going to come out of it finally, and we're going to be challenged to say, um, do I, do I, David, or do I, Lena, or do I, Betsy, need to uh, fundamentally change the way I've been living on this planet and do it in a more responsible, less impactful way so that I contribute less to, to climate change, so that I can contribute less to the disruption of, of tropical forests. So I, I have less impact because all of those impacts do lend themselves uh, to to causing possible future spillovers. For instance, very quick example, if we have a cell phone, if we have a, a laptop computer, we are customers for a mineral called coltan, C-O-L-T-A-N. Have you ever heard of coltan? No. Most people haven't, some people have. It is a mineral. Oh, it's probably all around me though, is, is it right? Am, am I right? Well, it's, <laughs> it's, it's in, in my in room right now. It's yeah, in, okay. yeah it's, in, it's in your computer, it's in your cell phone. Okay. Um, in the form of tantalum capacitors, a particular kind of component that is necessary to these kinds of electronics, tantalum capacitors made from coltan. Where does coltan come from? Well, it's mined in just a relatively few places around the world. For instance, well, for instance, in the southeastern corner of the Democratic Republic of Congo, where the coltan mines are, are within or adjacent to diverse um, Central African forest containing lowland gorillas, containing porcupines containing lots of different kinds of monkeys, lots of different kinds of rodents, lots of different kinds of bats. And the proxies who go in there to mine that for us are mostly Congolese men. Uh, and what do they eat? Well, they live in these mining camps. I haven't been there. I want to get there and, and see this in person. But um, in most such situations, um, the workers have to, have to depend, at least in part, on quote unquote bushmeat wild animals. So by putting a consumer demand um, 
into the into the wow. global marketplace for for coltan for tantalum capacitors we are commissioning those men to go in there our proxies mine coltan and it's almost inevitable that they will be eating some wild meat wild animals and therefore exposing themselves to the possible spillover of new viruses that's and so what are we going to do we're going to not after this we're going to get rid of our cell phones throwing them away doesn't put the coltan back in the ground or the animals back into the forest but uh, it's the kind of thing that we need we are going to need to think about both on an individual scale and governmental scale and uh, in industry maybe industry should be forced to find ways science and technology should be forced to find ways to produce these things without coltan or ways should be devised to mine coltan without need for any workers to be eating wild meat how do we do that do we persuade them do we do we provide them with food in some other way some disruptive way all of these things the way uh, food systems are structured the way our consumer demands trickle out toward the rest of the natural world um, it's going to be time for some deep rethinking of all that when this is over otherwise uh, there's, there's a saying, you know, no, let no crisis go to waste. Otherwise, this horrible crisis will have gone to waste. Absolutely. And I think, I guess, education is part of that. And I think that, you know, even you just explaining that to me, I was like, I'd never have thought, I think we're at this, this time where so much information is available to us, but we just don't know what we're looking for. That's something that I didn't know I didn't know. I know there's gaps in my knowledge about lots of stuff, but that's yeah. something that I just never would have known to Google. Um, do you think that's it's a as good, well? That's so, a good way of putting it. Yeah, and I think, um, I don't know, that's why I like bookshops, because you can browse stuff that you didn't know you were looking for, and like Amazon algorithms. But um, I think it's it's also interesting when we think about that in government, because in theory, you know, democracy has its faults, but in theory, we're putting these people in power who are ignoring these things. If we're all more educated about that, do you think, do you see a future where somebody would be voted into power because they took epidemic risks seriously? I would hope so. If we understood so. what that was. I would hope so. I would hope that, that, that this will be an issue in elections. I hope that it's an, if, if we manage to have our presidential election in November, this November, and, and yeah. all of us are knocking on wood that, 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 that some sort of horrible political move is not made to try and prevent that. But, it, but it's also complicated because if you're going to have an election, how do you do it? How do you do it without jeopardizing people? So that's a very live question for us in the US now and I know it is in Britain too because yeah. Boris Johnson is in intensive care what's gonna to happen to him we hope he'll be okay um, yeah. do we hope he'll be reelected not necessarily do we hope Donald Trump will be elected no um, but um, a broader hope is that this kind of thing will be a serious issue it will be discussed how was COVID-19 handled, what did you do right? What did you do wrong? Why were you so unprepared? Why were we all so unprepared? What can be done differently? That, that should be talked about within the political conversations and not just you know, journalistic, literary, and scientific conversations. Absolutely, and I think it's gonna cross over from what you're saying, it's, it sounds like it's gonna cross over a lot with the environmental discussions mm -hmm. that are happening everywhere as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's gonna permeate um, a lot of stuff. 
Um, just on a lighter note to finish, I mean, I guess there's two questions. Is, is there anything that you're reading at the moment? Are you managing to read? I'm really struggling to read and concentrate at the moment. Are you reading? Anything? Oh, reading, reading. Oh, yeah. oh that old thing. <laughs> we're, we're book people, right? We're book people I know, people we, here. Sh we should be reading. I can see reading, books behind you. Reading is precious. I am reading. Um, I steal moments uh, sometimes in the morning, but always in the evening and right before bed to read something that is just for my heart and my soul and my head and not nice. for my work. Uh, at cocktail hour, I'm rereading still again, The Plague, Camus. Oh, nice. And uh, <laughs> On theme. And it is on theme, but not quite too much on theme because it's still literature. It's much more mm -hmm. than information. Yeah. So I'm rereading still again, The Plague. Uh, right before bed, I'm reading Peter Gay's biography of Sigmund Freud. Uh, nice. That's on my that's on my tablet that sits behind my beside my bed. So, you know, I, I read a bit of that before bed. I'm not really very interested in Sigmund Freud, but I love Peter Gay. He's a wonderful historian and a wonderful writer. And so I thought, well, rather than reading some more Freud, I'll read about Freud. I'll read Peter Gay's biography, and it's you know it's life and times to a certain extent. Um, and I'm, I'm reading a, a couple of other books that are sort of, you know, stalled in progress. A biography of Louis Agassiz, the great Swiss-American biologist of the 19th century, a great opponent of, um, of evolution and Darwinism, but a great biologist nonetheless, although a very pompous, egotistical man. Um, again, it's a, it's a wonderful um, scientific biography. So I'm reading those things. Um, at different stages and, and when I get moments to do it. What are you reading right now? Amazing. Oh, right now, um, I, do you know what? I'm trying to get completely away. And have you ever heard of Iris Murdoch? She's an like Irish author. Yeah, of course, sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know, some Americans haven't and I don't know why. Um, yeah. I, I'm reading The Sea to Sea because it's about the an Arabic- The Sea to Sea? Yes. Yeah, do you like it? Um, I haven't it's read that so one. Far. I haven't it's read weird. that one. I've, I've heard that, um, well, you tell me, what is the See the Sea like? It's, it's about. It's, it's about a very a incremental book. Yes, isn't it's it? the big one, and I think a lot of us are tackling big classics at the moment. Uh -huh. So I'm trying to be on that, but um, it's about um, an arrogant um, actor who's retiring, and he goes to live alone in a in a house, and decides that he doesn't need anyone else, and he's like going to live on an island on his own, and then it doesn't work, and lots of people permeate his life without him want them him wanting them to, and the kind of like hijinks ensue essentially. But there's a lot of like long descriptions of furniture and sea, and he goes swimming in the sea a lot, and it's nice when I'm stuck in the middle of London in a flat, a block of flats. <laughs> oh, good. So it's about, he is, he is attempted self-isolation, social distancing, uh, and yes. life continues and to worked. intrude on him. It sounds like fun. It sounds Relatable. like fun. You know, when um, I was walking across, I mean, reading always, when I was walking across the Congo 20 years ago with this fellow and, you know, sleeping in the dirt at night, I had a tiny little tent with a very good mosquito net and I had a headlamp and we would go to bed after dinner, go to, go to bed at about 8.30 or so, and we'd get up very early to start walking again. Um, I carried in my day pack with me always uh, a first aid kit, my journal and notebook, uh, my headlamp, and a volume of Trollope. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I, I read Trollope. I, I think I've started with uh, The Way We Live Now, 
-hmm. And I, I had trollop penguin classics and the, and the penguin classic trollop was exactly the same size as my, my journal. So I could put them together in a Ziploc bag and wrap it with a rubber band and in my day pack. Then I could wade through a swamp. I could swim across a river and I knew that my journal and my trollop were going to be safe and dry. And then when I got in my tent uh, for a half an hour, I'd lie down in my sleeping bag, I'd have my headlamp, and I would be transported from the floor of a Congo jungle to 19th century London. And it was Perfect. wonderful. Do you still have that copy? Did it survive? Oh, yeah. It's here somewhere oh, yeah. in, this, in this office. <laughs> you didn't lose it in a swamp. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, not to me. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today, David. You're very That's welcome, Lena. So Pleasure fascinating. To um, and we're all going to keep learning, I think. Um, especially during this time. So I think it's a good time to really understand what's happening to us. Um, so thank you for being such an integral part of that. You're very welcome. Very welcome. Yeah, we'll all keep you... learning. We'll keep staying intellectually connected and socially distanced. And, exactly. And, and talking about books on, uh, on this kind of Zoom, Skype technology, we're very lucky to have it. Thank you so much for listening to this very remote vintage podcast and um, we do hope you enjoyed it if you did we'd love if you give us a review on itunes so that other people can find the podcast too if you are as interested as getting more educated on this topic as i am do pick up a copy of spillover and if you're able do consider buying it from your independent bookshop we have a thread on our vintage twitter at vintage books uh, telling you all the different amazing independent bookshops you can still order from and it is also available in ebook I've been Lena Norms. Thank you so much for listening and until next time.